Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview an artist whose world's views are as astonishing as his piano playing, Mr. Eric Reed. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young. Today, we have the honor of having Eric Reed with us. How you doing, sir? I'm doing just fine, my friend. How are you? Can't complain. Please tell the people about you a short little summary. Short little summary about a short little guy. Well, that's one thing you know. I'm short. <laughs> but uh, uh, my name is Eric Reed. Uh, my name is full name is Eric Scott Reed. That's my uh, so what's on my birth certificate. I was born in Philadelphia. In uh, in the nineteen set, <clears throat> and um, <laughs> uh, I'm a preacher's kid. Uh, I'm the youngest of four, uh, and you know I love music. I love people. Uh, I've lived all over the world. Uh, I've traveled. I, I consider myself very fortunate to be able to do something that I love. To do many things that I love, and as my humanity grows, as I continue to to age and to uh, transition from year to year, I find deeper meaning in music, and it becomes more than a career. It becomes more than something that I do for a living. Uh, having it to do for a living is a wonderful thing, of course. But I, I, I've used to I used to compartmentalize the uh, the different factions of my life, sort of factionalism, I guess. But then I started to realize it's impossible to be a whole human being. And then carve out chunks of your life and try to keep them separate. That's not how it works. You'll go crazy trying to do that. You're, you're constantly chasing, you know, you're constantly chasing tasks or you're, you're chasing careerism or you're chasing solitude or you're chasing uh, trying to be, you know, introverted or you're chasing social uh, aspects of your life, chasing having a family. And I said, man, I'm chasing all these different compartments and not realizing that all the parts make the whole and they're not really separate. And you can't separate them and expect to be emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically healthy and physically as well. So that's me. Okay. I'm, 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 on, I'm on a lifelong journey. I, I'm a journeyman. That's I mean, who I, I am. I can make a whole bunch of reference off that. So you say you're the opposite yes. of the guy in the soul movie. You were doing uh, too much not... while he was too focused on one thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I'm the opposite. But that guy was also very young, right? Wasn't he like 20 or 30? No, he was like 40, I think. Oh, he was 40. Oh, okay. Well, you know, 40, that's, that's where the, uh, the so-called midlife crises start, right? So I went through the same thing. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Dang. Yeah. So you started playing mm -hmm. in the church scene. Yes. I was five when I started playing uh, in church. And then I played for my father's church for a few years in Philadelphia. And then what made you decide to go the music route? Like full-time, <laughs> decide to major in it? You know, I don't know that it was a decision consciously. It, it, they, they, and a lot of artists say that it wasn't really a conscious decision as much as this is what was, this is what was present. This is what was there and available. Uh, I, I fantasized, I guess, or I had ideals about becoming an attorney, uh, uh, a defense attorney. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I liked baseball. I ran track. Um, but, you know, music was the only thing that was a, cons was, was a constant. And it was just, it was just all, like I said, it was always there. I was always either at the piano 
or listening to music. I had my headphones on or going to hear music. It was music, music, music. Okay. And mm-hmm. right out of undergrad, uh, where did you go for undergrad? I'm sorry. Uh, well, I, I went to Cal State Northridge in Northridge, California for a year. And, but prior to that, I had been working around Los Angeles. I moved from Philadelphia to Los Angeles with my family at age 11. And um, I went to uh, Westchester High School, which was a high school widely known for having talented people. Uh, Tim Story, who just directed the, uh, the new Tom and Jerry animated film that's coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also did Barbershop. That was his breakout hit. Um, what was it? The, uh, the, the, the superhero movie. Um, Silver Surfer. Silver Surfer, yes. Okay. Uh, what else did he do? Uh, Shaft. He did a Shaft reboot. Um, mm. And also also in that same graduating class was uh, Regina King. Okay, wow. Just, yeah, yeah. So we were, we, were, we were the talented 10th, you know, <laughs> at the school. Uh, but it was, it was uh, who else? Karen White, R&B singer Karen White went to the school. Uh, and it wasn't a performing arts high school. It was just a, a wonderful public school in the Los Angeles Unified School District that had um, great resources for talented people and as sports, uh, for sports as well. So out of high school, I went to Cal State Northridge. And all during that time, I had been working around Los Angeles with, uh, with, with legends like Teddy Edwards and Clara Bryant and Jeff Clayton, rest in peace. He just died. Clara Bryant, I believe, died in late 2019 or mid-2019, or maybe 2020. Anyway, they, they died recently. So uh, I had the opportunity to work with some wonderful musicians in Los Angeles. Uh, Billy Higgins, Leroy Vinegar, mm-hmm. uh, Red Calendar. You know, I worked with Buddy Collette, a lot of wonderful people. Cal State Northridge, I did one year there, and I, I just, I was, I was itching to be on the scene. I knew I had to get on the scene, and I, uh, I did not return to Cal State Northridge to complete uh, my bachelor's, much to the chagrin of my parents and my church and a whole bunch of other people. But it was the best decision I ever could have made because moving to New York City at that time, that was the time to do it because it was starting to change. The, the, the sea was, the, the, what is it, the sea changes. Yeah. The, the tide, the tide was starting to change right around the mid, sorry about that, I am repping paper, sorry about that. Uh, you can edit that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't supposed to talk about that. Sorry, my fault. Um, I uh, what was I saying? Yeah, I moved to New York at just the right time because my generation of people like uh, Christian McBride and uh, who else was in my generation in New York? Mark Carey. Mark Carey is a couple years older than me. Stephen Scott, mm-hmm. um, Gregory Hutchinson. It was just an um, amazing time. Uh, a wonderful scene. Like I said, right, we saw like the tail end of the real significant shift in the scene. I mean, there's so much to go from there. Actually, let's go for there. Let's go for the shift, okay? Okay. okay. So you come to New York. Yes. What's the first thing that hits you? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I had, I had been taking trips to New York. You know, living in Philadelphia, we had relatives that lived in New York. So we would drive up to New York all the time to go visit my aunts and my cousins and things like that. So I had already been familiar with the energy of New York. Uh, New York was kind of gritty and a, a little, little, little dangerous, you know, and there were cars parked up on the sidewalk and uh, 
double parking and you heard about the muggings and when it got dark, you stayed inside and the five and the four and five flight walk-ups and all that kind of stuff. So I had been exposed to that real early. As an 18-year-old, New York for me was like one huge amusement park. It was like walking into the Emerald City. I was like, wow, the Village of Vanguard. Wow. 52nd Street. Of course, 52nd Street had changed completely by that time. But the name was iconic. And then walking into Bradley's and seeing Clifford Jordan and Junior Cook. And I can go on and on and on about all of these musicians that I grew up listening to on record and had heard about and I played their music and I had dreamed of playing with these musicians. And here I am standing face to face with Ray Drummond and Rufus Reed and Ed Thigpen and Hank Jones and Tommy Flanagan. I'm just, just the, the, the cream of the crop of the New York scene and of the jazz scene. So that blew me away. I, 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 and I knew exactly what I had. They say you don't know what you have until you miss it. Uh, they, they, they don't know what you, you don't know what you lost until it's gone or something like that. <laughs> yes. And I, I knew what I had. We all knew what we had because we were out every night listening to music. And that's one thing that hit me that I, I started going broke real fast. I was about to say, <laughs> <laughs> how are you supplementing this lifestyle? But okay. Bruh, I mean, you know, it's New York City, of course. So, you know, and, and I was not familiar with taking the subway by myself. And I was living in Brooklyn at the time with Gregory Hutchinson and Dwayne Burnham. So I didn't know how to take the C train from Fort Greene into the village. So I was taking cabs all the time. Oh. And I was in Tower Records the rest of the time. And I couldn't cook. So I was in restaurants. <laughs> so I mean, I, I didn't have any money. I had zero dollars. Uh, I, I, I had enough money to my rent, and we didn't have cell phones. We all shared the same landline. You know, this is 1990, so cell phones. We weren't really doing that, um, and none of us were like on the internet. It, we were we were out. We were out, 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 out. So. If I wasn't, I'd like, my, an average day for me would be getting up at 11 o'clock in the morning and listening to records, and we'd practice, and we'd play jam sessions and things like that. Then around 6 or 7 o'clock, we'd go into the city, or we'd eat something, you know, in downtown Brooklyn, maybe some Jamaican spot or some Caribbean spot, get us, some, you know, some oxtails and some, some roti and some, you know, some yams, like, you know, and uh, jerk chicken, all that kind of stuff. And then we'd go into the city and go into Tower Records. And we would walk out of Tower Records with big old shopping bags. Do you remember those those yellow red uh, yes, shopping bags from Tower? So we'd walk out with those. We'd have like you know 15, 20 CDs <laughs> and vinyl and VHS. Mm. And then we head over to let me see. I guess the clubs that opened earlier would be like Zeno's and Condens over <laughs> there. On, yeah, you remember those places? Those things. So I think they had, <laughs> what, what, what were you going to say, Land? <laughs> Yeah, jazz clubs are dying breed over here in New York. Yeah, I hate to say it. <laughs> no, it, it, it's the truth. It's the truth. So we we hit Zenos, we hit Condens, and then uh, you know, and you could eat. I mean, I'm telling you, man, any night of the week, 
you can see Art Taylor at Condon's and then go over to Zeno's and hear uh, Larry Willis and then head over to uh, the Vanguard, hear Tony Williams, head down, down to uh, Sweet Basil and hear Art Blakey. The Knitting Factory, if you wanted to go hear, uh, what's my man's name? Uh, alto player. And I, I played Oliver Lake. Oh. Uh, you know, and, and then go over to, I mean, it was, it was amazing. You know how it was. It, it was just amazing. Then go over to Birdland and you go over to McKell's and then everybody, everybody wound up at Bradley's because their first set started at 10 o'clock and the last set started at 2. So, you know, you head over to Bradley's and you can hear John Hicks. Yeah, but the thing about this is that most of these spots ain't open anymore. There's nowhere really that people could play. So right. don't you think this is part of the downfall of the jazz music in general? Where does a young artist play? The garage is gone. Question. The standard yeah. is temporarily gone. Uh, Birdland, yeah. I think, might be gone. They're, it's It's getting scary for them. It's getting a little tricky. Yeah, so... What do you think that means um, in the music world? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. John Coltrane, somebody asked John Coltrane what he thought about the jazz scene and what's going on. And this was about 1959 or 1960. Mm -hmm. And John Coltrane's response was, there aren't enough jazz bands. Now, this was 1960. Duke and Count still had bands that were on the road all the time. You mean big bands? He had just, big bands, okay. yes. John Coltrane had just left Miles Davis and started his own quartet. Horace Silver had a band. Cannonball Adderley. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie. I said Miles already. Um, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. I said Horace Silver. All these bands were still working. So when... I read that in that interview, but that was John Coltrane's response. I was like, what is he talking about? And he wasn't talking about the international touring scene because that's the problem. We think that that's what jazz is. That we think that jazz is touring and playing all over the world. That's one aspect, number one. Number two, that's industry. That's what that is, you know. That's not the local scene. And that's what John Coltrane was talking about. You know, John Coltrane came, came from a tradition of walking the bar. You know, the things that he was doing that weren't always about being on stage and playing a love supreme. A lot of the scene, a lot of what's hurting the jazz scene is like you were just talking about. These, these clubs and these venues uh, closing down. And this was even pre-COVID that, you know, venues were, were closing down and not able to maintain uh, viability on the scene. So when he said that, I was like, wow, that's very, very interesting. We don't have, in addition to missing, in, in addition to the, uh, the venues closing down, what we also have is a lack of integration in the local environment. Whereas in the 1960s, there were 20 spots you could play in Chicago. Now in Chicago, it's basically the uh, the Green Mill and the Jazz Showcase. All I know those is the Green the only Mill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So those are the only two pl places that people really, really talk about in Chicago. There are other places, but again, the one aspect of the industry where everybody goes 
like all of the so-called names, they all go to the showcase or the green mill. And the other places aren't even considered. Okay, so that brings up a whole bunch of different problems, I should mm-hmm. say. So there are no mm-hmm. spots to play. Not enough spots, that's for sure. Why do you think... Do you think no one goes to them? Or do you think people generally don't have interest in them? Because I'd be the first to say, a lot of times I drag someone to their first jazz club <laughs> and I have a lot of mistakes of horror stories where that happens to be the night where someone wants to do that song in the worst key possible just to mm. prove how good they are. And it's mm. like, it sounds like total, because no one is used to playing that song in that many different flats. Right, right. But the person on stage doesn't care because he sounds good. It's, that's, that's really loaded, Leander. It's, it's a loaded question. Uh, there's been so much change with regard to how people spend their money and their time with regard to being entertained. When you think about social media and the internet and live streaming and and streaming movies, you think about how much technology has impacted social engagement and social contact. You look at how much social media has impacted our government. You know, there was a time when these grassroots groups would really be out in the street, out in the street, hoofing it, hitting the pavement, doing the work. Now, a majority of protesting has taken place in public forums on social media. The internet and computers have really, I think, substituted actual, physical, face-to-face human engagement, and not in the most positive way. Some of it's been positive, some of it's been negative. People get behind the screen, and they're all big and bad. They talk all kind of crap, and they make you know these idle threats, and you have uh, cyberbullying and all that kind of stuff. But fewer people have, you know, put their, their money where their mouth is and say, you know what, let's do this. Let's get, and, but here's the problem. With this pandemic, now you can't even really do that. Even if you wanted to get away from social media, they don't want you out in the street getting into crowds and gathering and things like that. Okay. It's crazy. It's okay, insane. So is it fair to say, like, Esperanza and Christian are the two biggest or no names right now in the jazz scene. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't know. Wow. Because I let... No, 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 no. no this, this, is, this, is, this is a very specific and contextualized uh, no, and I'm, unique situation that I'm in. No, I understand. I'm not throwing shade at those two. I'm just like, so you don't even know who you would say is the top person. Well, I, I, I don't because I've, I've never looked at it that way. Certainly there are people who have gotten more notoriety than, uh, than other people. Yes, of course, that's how it works because it's industry-based. But I left New York City in 2008. And as soon as I left New York City, I essentially, I essentially, for all intents and purposes, left 
the New York or left left the jazz scene. The jazz scene is bigger than New York City, but then again, hmm, we temporarily lost him. New York City. I can repeat that. We kind of lost you temporarily. What was I saying? What was the last thing you heard? You left the New York scene. I left the New York when I left New York City in 2008. I essentially left the jazz scene because most people, when they talk about the jazz scene, generally they're talking about New York City. When people talk about the jazz scene, they're not really talking about Atlanta or Pittsburgh or Seattle or Chicago or L.A. They're basically talking about New York City when they say the jazz scene. The jazz scene and New York City are synonymous for the most part. Okay, that is fair. But what yeah, I meant but, by that, okay, after you. Yeah. Well, well, we all know that the jazz scene, of course, if we speak globally, includes every and anybody that's playing jazz wherever they are. That is the broader scope or the broader sense of the quote unquote jazz scene. But micro, you know, the jazz scene really kind of means New York City. So when I left, I left all of my, uh, awareness of what was going on in New York. So if there were young musicians coming to town, I didn't know who they were. When I was actively working and living in New York City, every young musician that came to town, we got the word. And the word was like, you know what? You got to check out this young drummer named Rodney Green. That cat is making some noise. You know what? There's a young cat named Chris Lewis that's on the scene now. Need to hear him. Uh, and, and every time somebody, you know, it, and it happened in the 90s with Wayne Escoffrey and Mike Rodriguez. And it happened in the early 90s with, you know, once I got on the scene and Gregory Hutchinson and Christian McBride. And in the 80s, it was Benny Green and Cyrus Chestnut. And this was Kenny Durham's thing. Every cat that came to New York City, Kenny Durham made sure he got that cat, maybe from the bus station or whatever it was, Took him around. That's what he did with Joe Henderson. Took him around the city, put him on some gigs, introduced him to cats, and said, hey, this is a cat you need to check out. So leaving New York City, I was no longer, I no longer had access to that. That's why when you ask me who the the, the, the most known person or the most known people are, I could not tell you. No, I have that's no cool. Idea. You took it co- a completely different direction than I was going at, but what I meant by that was... So why don't we have somebody in the jazz community that is making noise on Twitter so that it's at least the art form is relative or relative still in social media presence? Because when I think of musicians making a... Like, I don't know if you pay attention. So like Selena Gomez, the singer, pop singer. Okay, okay. She calls out Facebook the other day. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with the statement she did or how she did, but she does that. And people okay. talk about it. It becomes a news, a national news story, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Do we even have a jazz artist that can make noise like that? I reckon, and I'm going to step very lightly here, I, I reckon that that person at one time could have been Wynton Marsalis if social media existed in the 80s or early 90s. Today, I thought that person was Nicholas Payton, but I guess I'm wrong. 
from my understanding, Nicholas was very vocal uh, about a lot of things. He was unapologetic and he was very direct, often coarse, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. I, 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 but I guess, I guess it's not him. Is it? I don't think he has the numbers nor the national, okay. the, the mainstream attention. Okay. I could be well, wrong. See, there you, but <laughs> but there, there you go. That, that, but that word right there, mainstream intention, attention, mainstream is, I believe, the, the, the key word here because jazz is not mainstream music. That's a problem. So therefore, it will, there, well, therefore, it's not going to get this. You see, there's no way for something, for, the, for, for art music, let's call it art music for now, and I mean music like specifically jazz and classical music or European art music. Those two types of music in general are largely uh, musician and artist driven, and they're not industry driven. We have tried and tried and tried to copy the the hip hop folks and the, the pop folks with the album covers and the, the, the makeup artists and the artwork and, and combining this music with that music, we have tried and tried and tried for decades to, quote unquote, make jazz more accessible or more popular. And accessible is a word that I have just come to hate. But it was the word that I heard all the time. Do you have a track that's more accessible? I'm like, look, man, you knew what you were getting when you signed me. Don't, 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 you know, don't come at me with this. I don't want to do those kinds of things. That's not where my head is. I want to stay over here and play this swing. But they're trying to say to me, yeah, but you know, you'll sell more records if. Well, I understand that. Then if you wanted to sell a whole bunch of records, why did you sign me? You know, <laughs> you, you know what I do. I don't look like, uh, what's my man's name? Uh, L- Lamar Odom. Is that the new guy? Lamar Odom, is that his name? Singer? This Lamar Odom? The basketball is, player? Is it, no, then, then maybe not. There's some new guys, an R&B singer named Odom. Maybe I made that up. You see where I am. So you see, you see where my head is. Oh, wow. Selena Gomez. I, I should know this. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm probably wrong. But Selena Gomez, that's a name that Leslie I Leslie Odom, you mean? Leslie Odom. Thank yeah, you. Okay. Leslie Odom. Yes, thank you. So yeah, I, I, I don't look like this guy. I'm not in those circles. I'm not in that industry. I don't want to do the kinds of things that these folks want me to do, and I never wanted to do them 30 years ago, that they wanted me to do to try to get people to like jazz. My thing is, if they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. I don't think we should have to go around trying to, hey, check out this music, you know, support the arts. It's like, my God, if people want to dig it, they will dig it. If they want to check it out, they'll check it out. I mean, that's That's, one thing I respect our drama for, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, that also kills our sales, etc. I'm pretty sure a lot of the modern hip-hop artists are doing stuff they don't really want to do. I bet you they're mm-hmm. releasing some songs that are basic and poppy because their record label tells them to do it. Mm-hmm. But it keeps them afloat. Mm-hmm. I've seen too much amazing talent just give up, and this whole situation with corona isn't helping. I agree. So that's why I'm curious. Like, When does the... Not saying in your case it was a pride issue, but when does that like stop and you take a back seat and say maybe I should try this, or maybe I'm seeing it wrong? 
Uh, no, you're seeing it the way you're seeing it. So there is no right or wrong. Um, for me, it's a personal decision. Um, because I have to do what I have to do. I have to be able to sleep at night. I have to be able to put out music that I can say, wow, we did that. You know, nobody heard it, but we did it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, and, and I think that's just the, that's the risk you take. That's the, the, the chance you take when you're pursuing something like jazz music. Now, if I wanted to go into R&B and into hip hop and chase a career, you know, be about careerism and, and lobby and begging people to vote for me and nominate me for Grammys and, 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 and you know, live, have three and four mansions. And you know, if, if I wanted that, then I would have pursued that. Clearly, I didn't want that and I did not pursue that, nor am I judging or deriding those that did. I am comfortable. I am happy with the decisions that I have made. I don't have a household name internationally. I'm okay. I'm very, very happy with what I do and how I do it and the people that support it. And there are people that support it. Okay. Not arguing that. By the way, mm-hmm. Pure Imagination, my favorite album by you. Just saying, throwing oh, that out there now. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. But, okay, that is fair. So, I mean, I was always under the opinion that, like, let's just say you have 10 tracks on your album. I think yes. eight of them could be exactly what you want. Heavy swing. Two of them, try something new. You never know. It might take off mainstream. And now people want to hear you play swing. That's the way I always saw it. Fair enough, but maybe I don't want to try something. I know. I could. I fully understand that. I mean, <laughs> do, I mean, do, I, do, do I have that option as an artist? Yes, you do. Right? I, and, and, and check it out. By, by exercising that option, trust me, I am fully aware that if that's where I want to be, then I have to accept full well knowing that I am not going to get into that other space where the numbers are larger, whether it's money or audience appreciation, or I'm fully aware of that because again, that's not what I'm pursuing. If I wanted to pursue being a well-known or well internationally, well, if, if I wanted to pursue a Herbie Hancock type of paradigm, then I would do those things. That's, but that's, that's, that's just not where I'm, that's not where I live. Okay. And Herbie is Herbie. And I, oh. I give Herbie his props. Herbie is a chameleon. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> he's versatile. He's done this. He's done that. And God bless Herbie. Herbie does his thing and he's done it well for, you know, 50, 60 years. Well, my other problem with that is then you got the purists, whatever a purist mm-hmm. is in jazz is, that mm-hmm. hate on anyone that tries something new and blacklist them well, that way. Well, I think that's two-sided, at least. It's kind of nuanced in the sense that oftentimes when somebody says try something new, oftentimes it means just to not swing, which is one of the cornerstones of jazz music. So when somebody says I'm trying something new or I'm trying something innovative, for the most part, that means they're just putting a backbeat on it. Another a point, a, another view or perspective 
is you are 100% correct. There are people that diss those other people who are trying something new. And I think oftentimes those people are just kind of afraid. They, they don't really think outside the box in terms of trying to come up with music and with sounds and ideas that stretch their own artistry. Okay, fair. It, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's really loaded. I mean, we can, we can sit and talk about this for, for, for all day long. And there are a lot of aspects to it. Um, I believe every artist needs to do what he needs to do. And you don't have to diss other artists. You know, you gain nothing by putting other artists down. And a, a, another side of it is you know that some of these other artists are what they'll claim that they're trying to be innovative, right? They claim, well, I'm just trying something different. It's like, you know what? Why don't you just admit that you feel as though not enough people like swinging and more people like backbeats or smooth jazz or what it is, and you want to make more money, you want to sell more records. Just be honest, just be honest about it. Be, be honest. And don't try to say that you're trying something new and innovative when in essence, it's really not all that new and innovative. It's kind of rehashed from the 1970s. <laughs> Smooth jazz, you know, jazz with a backbeat. That's not new. There are a lot of smooth jazz songs I like, sadly. So I'm not going to go with the basic I love Grover Washington. I love there's, there's, there's That's, Gerald He comes right, to right, uh, mind right away. Grover Washington. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, listen, I was a huge Spyro Gyra fan. Huge, huge, huge. Uh, I and, uh, do love, love them, too. Yeah, that stuff is catchy and cool. I Nathan like came that. on the other day, and like I said, I had to cut his thing short because he had foreplay, you know. I love mm -hmm. a lot of their stuff, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get you. Yeah, so everybody's got to do what he's got to do. And, and, and for, the best, for, for me, I just want, just, just be genuine. Just be honest. And it's not even for me to really judge. I just want to, I want to enjoy what I do. I want people to enjoy what I do. And it's cool. I think once we start trying to put other people into our boxes, that's where we get into trouble. And that's where we've been the last four years in this country. <laughs> so, Corona, can you tell me how that affected you personally? Oh, Leander. You know, I was just talking to a young man, Chris Lewis, saxophone player, if that's not a name that you know. Uh, he's on my latest record, mm -hmm. which is called What? For Such a Time as This. Wonderful young musician. And I was helping him, you know, he was trying to write this, this document. We were just, you know, he showed it to me on the screen. And he said, hey, how you doing? I said, man. <laughs> now, hear what I'm saying. Just... Listen to me first and then let, let, let me explain it. Okay. And I said to him, I said, man, I'm so tired of being black. <laughs> you opened a whole bunch of words. <laughs> man, this, this shit is tiring. It is, it's, it's, it's a job being a black person in the United States. It's like you just, you just can't be a person. When they see you, you have to be a black person. And it's somebody you know, either recoiling from you or crossing the street or when you sit down in a restaurant, it's not, yes, sir, what would you be having today? It's, 
Hey, my man, how can I help you? It's like, wait a minute. I, I, don't, don't be trying to identify with me by using colloquialisms. Just talk to me like you talk to anybody else. Oh, well, when I see people, I don't see color. Stop that bullshit. I'm sorry for my language, please. That's cool. Yes, <laughs> yes, you, yes, you do see color. And that's okay. If you can't see color, you're colorblind, really. You, if you can't see, then you can't make any kinds of assessments about anything. You're going to put on the wrong uh, combination of clothes. <laughs> you go, you're going to mix the paints up. You, know, you do see color. What you don't do is you're not going to treat me differently because you see my color. That's what that means. And so I, you know, and I, understand, I appreciate our white allies. I appreciate what they say. And we're constantly educating them about how to be an ally. You know, some of them, you have to do the work for them. Some of them are willing to do the work. But man, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's the most confounding thing to me, Leander, how it is that something as innocuous as skin tone can wreak so much havoc and be perceived as such a threat when we were the ones that did not make it a threat. We were just there. We were just there 400 years ago. And you said, okay, let's go take all the people that look like this, and now we're going to turn them into furniture. We're going to turn them into property. And now that we've got some freedom, now you see us at the, as a threat. Because what, what was it that uh, Louis Farrakhan said? You're afraid... <laughs> that we're going to do to you what you did to us. And if I was a white person, I'd be afraid of that too. Except, except nobody is trying to wreak vengeance on these people. They just want to stay in power. They just want to maintain the tone of white supremacy. So the idea of equality is like a far, far, far away fantasy. Nobody can even really envision it or fathom what that would really, really look like, especially these white supremacists, especially these racists. And it's like, you need to, you need to understand something. We don't want to take anything from you. I don't want anything you have. But you see, they think they should have everything. So anything you want, they want you to get it from them, and then they will decide how much equality you'll have, I what mean, jobs you'll You have. took this to Black Lives Matter, <laughs> Mr. Corona, but that's cool, man. It's your episode, well, your show. So you're saying more about the George Floyd protests in general. Well, you it's know, it's combined. It's, okay. it's combined. All these, all these things sort of fused together. Yes, George Floyd. Yes, COVID-19. Yes, the pandemic. Yes, this political landscape. Again, we can't separate these things. These things all happened at the same time, and we saw it. Now, this was 1990-something. What was 1992, the, the Rodney King riots? We saw that after the fact. That was video that came out weeks and weeks and weeks later. We saw this stuff go down in real time, and people all over the world saw it. And we could not unsee it. We heard him crying out for his mother. We saw that asshole with his knee on that man's neck. We saw this. We saw these idiots, these stupid mm -mm -mm -mm, storming the Capitol 
And now the New Yorker has released a 12-minute video that's far worse than what was released. Where are they? But they're like, they're, they were going to, they were going to murder these people. And pe- these idiots pulled out their phones. They announced it on so at least well, the Ku Klux Klan will I gotta say one thing. You don't fully know they're gonna murder them. What'd you just say? I'll shut up. <laughs> I'm just saying, you don't know. It's all speculation, you know? You gotta be kidding me. I'm just telling you what I was told the other day. Didn't they kill a cop outside of the Capitol? Yes, they did. A Capitol Hill policeman. Do you think they were going to spare Nancy Pelosi? Do you really you really think they were going to spare her? They were going to they were going to hang Pence. And here's the thing: we can say we don't really know what they were going to do, but let me tell you something. When Ashley Babbitt, with her stupid ass got shot in the neck. At that point, they were ready to do anything. These were, these were violent people. And of course, I guess maybe you're speaking legally. Maybe you're speaking legalese. You can't assume or presume to know what a person was going to do because they didn't get a chance to do it. Fair enough. I'll go with that. But check this out. Four years ago, half the country knew this was coming. I knew this was coming. I knew this is where we were headed, which is why I did not vote for Donald Trump, because I knew what he was capable of. And we have known for some 30, 40 years that he's been spewing his venom and taking out full page ads. Was it was it the New York Times about wanting to, you uh, know, Central Park? Yeah, yeah, come on, okay. man. That's, that's what I'm saying. So, no. Am, okay. am, am I, am I Negro Damas? Could I predict the future? No. But <laughs> I, I can absolutely tell you that what happened in the past couple of weeks, this was not a surprise to me at all. Okay. I just didn't know that was what stood out the most to you during the whole corona situation or that much. Normally, well, people no, normally people are talking about the loss of gigs, the loss of income, the loss of, you know, et cetera. But this obviously stood out a lot to you. You're passionate about it. I don't mind it. You're talking about it. Well, let me put it to you this way. Certainly the pandemic was a game changer, but I have never been a person who has worried about money. I am far from being part of the 1%. I am not saying that. I am not, I am not a millionaire. I am not part of the 1%. When I say I've never been one that has worried about money, I have always found a way to survive. And check it out. We're seeing many of these musicians have been surviving. It has not been easy. It has not been easy. But many of these musicians have found ways to survive. I have not yet heard of one musician who has become homeless as a result of the pandemic. Many of them have moved out of New York City and certainly, had they stayed, they probably would have been homeless. Well, a but lot of a them lot of, moved back home with their parents. I know that for yeah. a fact. Yeah. Yes. They yeah. had and somewhere so else to go. That's that, and that's my whole point. It's about surviving. Yes, clubs have closed, uh, and yes, income has been lost. Um, but again, we we survived 
we held each other up. We helped each other out. You know, there was there was some phone calls and some emails going around saying, hey, man, you know, we need to pull some bread together for so-and-so because they having a rough time. You know, we we closed ranks, as it were. We looked out for one another. And this is the same thing that happened during the, uh, the, the, the Great Depression. People opened up their homes to borders. People brought people into their homes, and this is how people survived. We've, we, we, we've survived. It, it would have been far less, what's the word? It wouldn't have been as harsh and as difficult if we didn't have the added stress of what was going on in this country's racial climate and political climate. It wouldn't have been as hard. It would have been just the pandemic. Pandemic, And back in March, April, when all the gigs start disappearing, I was doing okay. And they were saying, okay, everybody, shelter in place. You got to quarantine, you know, physical distancing. I was like, yeah, I'm an introvert anyway. So you're telling me you don't want me to go outside and talk to people? Uh, I'm cool. <laughs> you know, I'm good with that. Um, not everybody was okay. When you're an introvert, you learn how to cope by yourself very easily. It's much easier. For people who thrive on social engagement and social interaction, much harder for them. So there were, and now this, not just the pandemic and the racism and the sexism and the homophobia, now there's also the mental health issues. So I'm telling you, man, this, these, these past, four years, and this last year especially, we're going to see the fallout from this for, for years to come. Okay. <laughs> I believe that. So, just a question on this whole thing then. So, mm-hmm. if you could turn back time, would you still be a jazz musician? Hmm. Knowing everything you know now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because... When I think about Miles Davis, Live at the Black Hawk, when I think about Horace Silver at the Village Gate, when I think about Duke Ellington at the Cotton Club, when I think about Louis Armstrong playing West End Blues, when I think about Art Blakey and having a chance to play with Art Blakey, when I think about all of those things, my heart flips a little bit. I get a little giddy like a schoolboy. Uh, I get butterflies in my stomach. I, my, 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 I get goosebumps. That's the only thing in this world that has ever made me physically respond in such a way. Um, it's jazz music. If I had it to do all over again, I would have gone to business school. Why? And would have got, I would have gotten a degree in business just to become a better uh, businessman. Uh, uh, my business acumen was learned, again, in real time. You know, I learned it by doing it, by hanging out with Carl Allen and Ray Brown, uh, Ray Brown and people who were smart with their money and who understood business. They understood money. They understood investing. They understood how to have a career. Uh, I would have gone to business school, would have gotten a degree, and I would have taken the reins of my own career versus relying on the industry to help me make things happen. 
Okay. So I still I still would have been a jazz musician, but I think back then I would have taken money and made some investments that would have allowed me to create another kind of platform for myself that wasn't totally reliant on performing. Like you would have made your own streaming service or just in general you would have expanded? I would have. I would have taken advantage of expanding every possible uh, revenue stream that I could. I would have stayed on top of the, uh, you know, back when Net- when it was just Napster, you know, yes, I would okay. have looked at that. I would have looked at that, and I would have gone, "Hmm, there's something there. There's something there." I would have done what Warehouse Music and Sam Goodies and Tower Records did not do. Well, all the I record labels didn't do it. <laughs> exactly. Yes, all of that. I would have looked at iTunes and I'd have been like, ooh, hmm. Oh, there we go. Uh, we got to look at this, folks. That's what I would have done. I would I would have been more futuristic. You know, when you're a business person, it's all about relevance. Well, that's the same thing. Well, that, that's, that's, what, that's what any industry, whether it's medicine or music or whatever, it's all about relevance. What's relevant to today? How are you going to make yourself relevant or applicable in today's climate? Today's musician can't do it the same way I did it when I was 20. When I was 20, there were jazz clubs and there were old jazz artists around hiring young jazz musicians. That's the way I did it. That's the way I learned the music. And that's how I built my resume, my pedigree, my experience, and my career. A 20-year-old today has to do about 20 more things in order to survive. He's got to teach. He's got to play. He's got to record. He's got to write. He's got to understand how to do logic and reason and Pro Tools. He's got to play about five or six different instruments. He's got to be able to sight read. He's got to be able to play all these different kinds of music. That's what today's musician needs to do, today's young musician needs to do in, in, in order to survive. I agree with pretty much all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so if you could make an album, no mm-hmm. constraints, Mm-hmm. No budget restrictions. What type of mm-hmm. project would it be and who would be on it? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, all those people are dead. So Really? <laughs> no, Come on, man. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, of course, yeah, there are a lot of folks who have, who have, you know, who have checked out of here that I would love to have had the opportunity to record with them. But if I had no constraints, huh, that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't really have um, these, these grandiose ideas about doing, you know, big budget, big name projects. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, what I would like is to have, if it's about budget, I would like to have a week to rehearse some music and then another week to record it and I can get it exactly the way I wanted it. In fact, I'd like a week to write it, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like doing a, a, a movie score. You know, you just take the time you need to write the music that you're hearing. There would definitely be some vocals. I would want, I would want to use a choir for sure. Uh, you know, here you go. Okay. So now that you got me thinking about it with no constrictions, no constrictions whatsoever, no restrictions. I would want to 
record a project that would be a culmination of the past 45 years of my musical experiences and 30 plus years of professional experience. So it would include a gospel choir. It would include various different lead singers uh, from different styles of music. It would include uh, a big band. It would include a symphony. And of course, you know, jazz musicians, you know, bass, drums, horns, and things like that. It would be a project that definitively states this is who Eric Reed is. I haven't done an album like that yet. I've done projects where I have made statements about my arrival to that particular point at the time I made the record, like with, you know, the record I just did for such a time as this. Mm -hmm. That was all about the pandemic, Rihanna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, what was going on. So that, essentially that, that particular project came out of that. But I have not yet done a project that I can definitively state that's me. Fair. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it would be every, everything that I have ever wanted to do. Every kind of music that I have ever heard and listened to and have played. So it would be gospel, R&B, jazz, classical, Latin music. It would be everything. It, it would be everything. You know that Donnie, Donnie Hathaway uh, record, Everything is Everything? It, it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it would be everything. Yeah. And, and, but that's, you know, that's an expensive undertaking. Yeah, I agree. That's why. I like the accent theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. I have to start working on that. So before you go, we normally yeah. like to give a shout out and show our respects to the artists who came before us. So yes. I'm going to tell you an instrument. You choose who you would want playing it and why, okay? Just one person or a couple different types? I mean, if you want to give more, but I prefer one person. Why? Because it makes it more difficult, okay? Uh, it gets me in trouble too, but go ahead. I Well, that's why I'm not... I normally would list the artists. It's just that, yeah. like you said, I don't want you to get in trouble. Okay? Yeah. So okay. on trumpet. And you said I can list more than one or no? No. And anyone. They could be dead. They could be alive. Dead or alive? Yes. Freddie Hubbard. I can't argue that. On saxophone. Okay. <laughs> uh, saxophone. Um, mm. Wayne Shorter. No, 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 no. Joe Henderson, Joe Henderson. Joe Henderson, okay. Yeah. On um, bass. Mm. That's a tough one. Um, I'm going to go with Bob Hurst. Okay. Bob Hurst. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Wouldn't have guessed that one. Mm -hmm. As a vocalist. Billy Holiday. Okay, can't argue that one once again. Mm -hmm. On drums. Huh. Huh. Uh, <sighs> Joe Jones. Really? Yeah. Okay. That, that one I'm going to ask why. Because he's my favorite drummer. But now that I'm thinking about it, I should have said Max. And I say, well, Philly Joe is my favorite. But just for sheer creativity, 
mm-hmm. and just absolutely astounding and confounding ideas, Max Roach. Max Roach, his, his, his brilliant mastery and musicianship is just unsurpassable. But Philly Joe is my favorite drummer. Okay. So, yeah. And finally, you can't say yourself, on <laughs> piano, keys. <laughs> uh, on piano. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to go with Nat Cole. Nat King Cole. Nat King Cole. Can't argue that at all, so... <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you could argue him if you want. I'd be, I'd be willing to. Well, but he could also yeah. sing. So, and he yeah, has a lot yeah. of. So, I said timeless songs. So yeah, yeah. And you said saxophone, and I said Joe Henderson. That's tenor on alto. I'm going to say Charlie Parker. Oh, if if I'm allowed to do that, you're allowed <laughs> to do that. But <laughs> if that's the case, I'm going to say one more on trombone. Who? Oh, on trombone. Uh, Mm. Wow. Uh, I'm going to go with JJ. Yeah, JJ Johnson. Over Steve Davis, over Troy, Trombone Shorty, over. I could go on a whole list. Well, well I mean. What, what, over what, Ray what is, Anderson, what, over. I'm just curious what, why. What is, what, is, what is this exercise? What are we going for? Are we going no, for I'm like, just curious why. And uh, that one I was not guessing at all. Yeah, J- JJ. Was, was so smooth. He had such an articulate and slick and masterful approach. And his tone, oh my God, that tone. And the facility and the patience. There's one recording in particular that I'm thinking of where it's... um J.J. Johnson, and it's some live concert. I believe it's Oscar Peterson on piano, Ray Brown on bass, and Connie Kay on drums. I think that's the group. And they play Yesterdays. <laughs> and the stuff that J.J. plays on that, it's just, it's just wow. This, his time, he was just right in the groove and right in the pocket. Okay. Yeah. So could you tell the people how to contact you, your social media, your website, et cetera? Absolutely. Uh, my Facebook is Eric Popper Reed. That's my music page. My Instagram is Popper Reed Piano. My Twitter is at Reed's Creeds. Am I missing something? Facebook, Twitter. Instagram. Yeah. Instagram. My Instagram is Papa Reed Piano. Um, I, I haven't gotten to the TikTok thing yet or, uh, <laughs> uh, or the Snapchat. I, I or, or Snapchat or what is it? Twitch? Yes. There's so many. I mean, like I said, it, it's overwhelming. But again, the burgeoning young artist or anybody that's trying to break into any kind of field as a young person. You've got to be aware of all these portals. You, you, you've got to have all that stuff together. YouTube channel. I do have a YouTube channel, but I don't know uh, what it's called. 
but you know, yeah, you, you, you have to be into all these things because the deep thing is when you try to get booked at clubs uh, now, the first thing they ask you is, what does your social media numbers look like? So, you know. That brings up a go. different set of problems. <laughs> yeah, it does. It sure does. Because that, that, that makes the, not the competition, that, that makes the viability, the viability, the, vi- the viability or the, the, the requirements, you know, the, 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 the merit is very, very different. Nobody's going to ask Ron Carter, <laughs> what do your social media number, numbers look like? Now, of course, he is active on Instagram, but he wasn't always. But of course, he's also been Ron Carter for 80-something years. So it's a very, very different ballgame for him. But for somebody who's 20 and unknown, that's what they're looking at. I mean, I was looking at it from a different point of view because okay. there's some amazing artists that have no personality. Mm. So they yeah. will not do well on social media. Very true. Very true. And even if they, they might have personality, but they have no social media presence. Yes. But I'm more worried about the person that can't even build the presence if they wanted to. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of like MTV for Stacey Lattisaw. Ooh. Yeah, Stacey Lattisaw couldn't dance. She just stood there, looked pretty, and sang. And with M- MTV was a game changer, right? That's true. So if you couldn't dance, you couldn't move around, you didn't really look like you didn't really look like look look, look like much. MTV, you you were gonna you were gonna your, your career was going to tank because now there was an added element. People have often said that if Aretha Franklin was trying to have a career now as a young 19, 20-year-old artist. She wouldn't make it because all she could do was sing. I sadly agree with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have the look also. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Some strange times, my friend. <laughs> well, <Some> strange times. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, sir, thank you for coming on. Means the best. Leander, thank you for having me on. You have given me, you have challenged my thinking. You have uh, compelled me to, to look more into the things that I think and feel. And uh, you've opened up, opened up my mind to some ways of thinking, too. So I'm going to have to, you know, re- revisit uh, a lot of what I thought I believed or even thought I knew. So thank you so much. <laughs> Anytime, sir. And like I said, everyone, this is Leander from Impop Exchange. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Take care, my friend. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>